Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Tina Sire, PCA Chief Impact Officer. I'm so pleased to be joined today by Kat Osterman, one of the most dominant softball players in history. Kat was born in Houston, Texas, and played her high school softball for Cypress Springs High School, where she graduated as the Gatorade National Player of the Year. She went on to play college softball at the University of Texas, where she threw three perfect games as a freshman. In 2004, Kat took a redshirt year to represent the United States in the Athens Olympics, where she was the youngest member of the squad. Her two wins in a save, including a team-leading 23 strikeouts, meant she returned home with a gold medal. Kat finished her career at UT as the NCAA's all-time leader for strikeouts per seven innings pitched with more than 14. Her whip and perfect games with seven by the time she finished her career were also records. She's second on the all-time NCAA Division I strikeout list with 2,265 and was named three times as USA Softball's National Player of the Year. After dominant seasons in the National Pro Fast Pitch League, Kat returned to the Olympic stage, where she came away from the 2008 Beijing Games with a silver medal. She finished her 10-year career with Team USA with a 59-4 record and a .38 ERA. In 2013, she was inducted into the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. Kat is now an assistant coach for the Texas State Bobcats. Kat, thank you so much for joining me and the Positive Coaching Alliance audience today. Thank you for having me. So some people might be really surprised to hear that uh, you started playing softball in first grade, but then you stopped playing for a while to play soccer and basketball and other sports and then ended up finding your way back to softball in fifth grade. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah, um, you know, I joined I joined a little league close to my house um, because one of my friends in the neighborhood, she played and essentially just kind of was like, hey, do you want to play softball with me? And so we both played, and um, our little league had just divided from another league, and so they put first through fifth graders all on the same team. And, uh, you know, so we had fifth graders pitching at us even though they're four years older. And um, being in first grade, you know, it just wasn't fun. It wasn't um, – you know, our coaches tried to make it fun, and they tried to do as much as they could, but being a first grader in that environment, it just wasn't really fun for me. And, um, you know, I told my parents I didn't really want to sign up again um, the next year, and my parents have always been very supportive of, you know, doing what – I don't want to say doing what I want, but just being able to allow me to enjoy um, – to play what I enjoy. And so, yeah, I actually walked away from the game and um, picked up – I had been playing soccer at the same time with a bunch of, you know, the same friends that played softball, but we all ended up going and playing soccer. And I played soccer for quite a few years um, on a club team, you know, eventually got out of rec, but played club ball for soccer. And I played basketball my entire life because, you know, I'm 6'2", so my whole family is tall. So that just kind of ran in the family. Um, and then, yeah. to be honest, I was, you know, I had been playing soccer for a long time. I enjoyed it, but I didn't really love it. Um, and I just kind of wanted to try something new. And at the time, my dad just said, hey, you know, would you want to try softball again? Um, you know, maybe give it another shot and see what it would see if you like it. And so I did. Um, I said, sure. And we signed me up. And, um, you know, again, I wasn't pitching yet at this point. Um, but then I played Little League for, I think, about a year and a half. And one time um, our pitchers had exceeded their innings limits that Little League has in the rules, and we needed somebody to throw an inning or two. And I volunteered to try. And as soon as I tried, um, I fell in love with pitching. And that's kind of how I got 
you know, I don't want to say stuck, but that's how I got locked into softball and playing for so long, just because by chance we needed a pitcher, and I ended up falling in love with that position. That's so great that you you felt comfortable enough to step into that role, not having done it before, and, you know, being sort of the center of attention on the mound. I'm curious for our listeners, um, how long did you continue to play soccer and basketball? Were those sports you played into high school, or when did you actually specialize in softball? Um, I played... I played basketball from third grade all the way through high school. So I didn't quit playing basketball until I went off to college on my softball scholarship. Um, mm-hmm. Soccer, I, I only played soccer for, I think, about one more year after I joined, um, after I started playing softball again, and that was just because we were going to make the move to playing, you know, club softball, and I needed to pick one because both of them were overlapping in their seasons. And at that time, I was a goalie in soccer, and as much as mm-hmm. I enjoyed playing soccer, I didn't enjoy being a goalie. And uh, that was obviously going to be long-term my position on our team. And so I decided to walk away from soccer probably in about sixth grade. Um, So in junior high, I played everything. High school, I played volleyball my freshman year. And then after my freshman year of high school, I played just basketball and softball. And they didn't really overlap a whole lot. So I guess technically I specialized and started doing pitching, pitching only and softball only other than high school basketball once I got into high school. Yeah. You know, a lot of the parents that we talk to, they feel a lot of pressure from coaches to have their kids specialize early on. And, you know, they sort of get this idea that if they don't have their child focus on that one sport, that their child won't have opportunities down the road to get a college scholarship or play at the next level. And you've, you know, you've clearly shown you could take the game to the highest level, even having been a two-sport athlete through high school. Can you talk to our parents about how to handle that when they may feel the pressure from coaches to have their child specialize, what they can do in those situations? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I know I can even speak, you know, we've had this conversation here in the office with uh, our head coach here at Texas State even, but it's good to play other sports. It makes you more athletic. It makes you in better condition. You, you know, agility is better playing other things. Um, I think the forcing the, the notion to force people to specialize is because they think if you invest your time just in one thing, you're automatically going to be so much better because you're not spending your time, you know, at lessons for basketball if you want to be a baseball player. But right. to be honest, kids, kids become more athletic by playing other sports. I mean, there are some ways that, you know, basketball just kept me in really great shape year-round. And that made me a better mm-hmm. pitcher because I wasn't only pitching and I wasn't only going to run miles at a time. You know, playing basketball was I was probably getting as many miles as I could, you know, I would if you just said go run for 20 minutes. Um, right. So I think, I mean, honestly, other sports other sports keep you athletic, but at the same time it breaks up the monotony. You don't want kids to get burnt out because they're only spending time playing one sport over and over. Um, and I think yeah. that's what's happening more and more now is you're making, you know, 10- and 11-year-olds try to specialize, and by the time they get to college they don't want to do it anymore because that's been their life since they were 10 instead of being their life since, you know, my sophomore year of college since I was 13 or 14 when I can make that right. decision. Yep, yep. What advice do you have now for athletes who maybe are starting to feel signs of burnout and maybe they arrive, you know, to you and they've been specializing since middle school? Um, what what are those signs of burnout and then what do you do to help them? I think the first sign, I mean, the first sign is that they, they can't really get any joy out of what they're doing. Um, yeah. You know, they all, don't get me wrong, almost every athlete has days every now and then where you feel like you have to go to the field instead of you really want to because whether you're overwhelmed with school or personal issues or whatever, you know, that happens. But it's when day to day they can't find anything 
they feel like they're not successful at anything or they can't find joy in, in being successful at something. Um, yeah. That's when it's kind of a red flag that they're no longer they're not they're no longer doing this because they really want to and that they need to we need to figure out a way to intervene before it spirals into I really hate doing this because that's the next right. step after that. Um as a coach a lot of times it just comes with a conversation, talking to them about it and not necessarily you know, in the college level, it's not necessarily giving them time off because we obviously need to be working with them, but it's finding when they do have free time, what are you doing and can you go do something else you enjoy, even if it means not hanging out with your teammates because it reminds you of your sport and then you're burnt out. Um, just kind of finding other ways to allow them to kind of relax. And, you know, I actually experienced burnout coming back from 04. Um, my junior yeah. year, I got back to school. School had already started. Um, I got back. I had been on the road with the national team for 10 of the 12 months, I think. So I've been doing softball pretty much for 10 months straight. And I got yep. back to school, started school right away. I didn't even really have time to decompress. Coach gave me, I think, a week off. And then I joined my team, you know, conditioning, lifting, practice. Yep. And I would go to practice, and there was no part. I still loved softball, but no part of me wanted to be there because I just wanted yep. time away from it. Like, I still loved the game, and I was very – excited with the fact they came home with a gold medal but I wanted yeah. no I wanted no part of it and my teammates could figure it out too and you know I think my teammates finally went to coach my coach and was like you know Kat's trying she's trying to be here but it's not doing any of us any good right now like she needs a break and so hmm. I ended up getting a little bit of a longer break because um, it wasn't much of a worry that I was out of shape since I just come back from competing it's of not course. like I came back from a month of you know a month-long cruise or something um <laughs> but but so, you know, I did get a break there, but I was starting to experience it too because you get there and it's like you know you know what you need to do. You know you should be having fun because you used to have fun doing it, but you're just yeah. really kind of over it and it's just getting a mental break here and there to be able to to decompress and almost miss it a little bit. You have to miss it to be able to really love it again. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So on that um... – Gosh, you know, playing softball straight for like 10 of 12 months and ending up with the the gold medal. Uh, I think you were the youngest player on that team um, in in Athens. And I'm curious uh, what that experience was like. And did you feel like your teammates did things to make you, you know, to have like positive, you know, initiate you into that team and have you feel part of that team, even though you were really on the younger end of, of the team? Um, yeah, I, I was the youngest on roster, and, um, you know, for me it was a little intimidating because I was, I think the youngest and the next youngest was only two years older than me, so there wasn't even, like, a person within a year of me, really. Um, yeah. And some and a lot of our players had been even out of college. So um, for me it was, it was different, and I was entering on a team that really I had only, I had been on our quote-unquote elite team for the national team um, the two years or two years before, and then I had really only been with, you know, the, the older group for maybe six months before the national team tryout, and then we had it, and I made it. Um, but honestly, it was the best growing environment I think I could have asked for. Um, our head coach, first and foremost, after the team was named, you know, we all had individual meetings with him to talk about what he saw our role being and, you know, how we could improve, you know, in the next nine or ten months prior to the Olympic Games, and um, you know, he basically had told me that my maturity was the only question mark people had when I first tried out for the national team, and then that I had proved over the two or the two and a half summers before that I had it. 
Um, mm-hmm. So that's why he chose me. And so that's kind of always when you can hear a coach's, I don't want to say reasoning, that they have to have a reason for everything, but when he instills confidence, he was able to instill confidence in players without really having to say it, come up to you and be like, I wholeheartedly believe in you every day. You just knew with how he spoke to you and the fact that he put you on the field um, mm. that he had confidence in you. And it's different because it's hard to explain how he did that, but he did. And, um, you know, that first meeting for him just to say, you know, I've watched you in 2001 and 2002 and you proved yourself. And when we put you on the Pan Am team in 03, you did the job. So I believe you can, I believe you can be part of the staff. For me, that was huge because I was the youngest and, you know, you had Lisa Fernandez and Lori Harrigan and Jenny French who were household names at this point in the softball world. And yeah. uh, so then here's this youngster coming along and it's like, where do I fit in? Um, and then I also benefited because Lori Harrigan actually um, went out of her way to take me under her wing and kind of teach me the ropes and not the do's and don'ts, but just the just pointing out sometimes when, you know, I made an immature decision or an immature comment or whatever just because mm. I was younger. And she knew that it wasn't it wasn't ever me trying to act out or be rude or anything like that. It was just the fact that I was so much younger than everyone. Um, yeah. So she did a really good job of taking me under her wing and and helping me grow. And I really do feel like I was able to be successful, especially in that Olympics, because she was kind of there not telling me what to do all the time but guiding me. Um, and uh, I look back at that, and I grew tremendously, both as an athlete and a person um, during that time. And I think I came back to college, I don't want to say completely different, but um, a pretty different person because of the growth that I was forced to have in order to adapt to the team, but it was needed. And it was also appreciated because I look back now and my junior and senior years could have been a lot different if I hadn't grown the way I did. Yeah. Yeah, I, I bet a lot of people sort of can imagine what you, how you grew as an athlete, but can you tell us a little bit more about maybe some of those life lessons where you say you grew a lot as a person? Um, like what were a few of those things that then you were able to bring back to UT after that? Um, you know, I think there were, there were a lot of, I mean, just smaller things and um, just kind of, I mean, it was, it was so most of it was related to the softball field somehow, but, you know, a pitcher and I only pitch so after we throw our bullpen and take ground balls there's not much left for us to do it was always you know while the rest of the team's working find something to do Um, we're not sitting over on the sideline in a bucket because that's not acceptable because your team's working so find something that you can be doing too Um, and so I've kind of I went back to school and that's always been the case and I continue to do it now is you know if everyone else is working I don't have something I'm going to find something to do um, to be productive and to help to help benefit and you know you can do that in any avenue of life um that was one another was just watching how hard everyone worked um I felt like I was a hard worker already going into that program but obviously seeing the next level of hard work inspired me to keep pushing the envelope um and I do and I, I still do that daily and more than anything you know I think I just I'd say a lot of times I feel like I skipped a couple years of college life that everyone else has but mm-hmm. I learned that I learned that when something's that much of a priority to you, that making the sacrifice is completely worth it. Because there's not a day in my life where I go back and have two years of quote unquote college life, and then realize, you know, my junior senior year, oh, if I'm real serious, we can go to the World Series. Um, I learned right. that sacrificing for something that you really really want 
um, is worth it because my first two years of college, that's all I did. On weekends, I was throwing to a net or if I catch her, if I could get it, get one because I wanted my tryout in 04. I didn't want to look back and be like, well, what else could I have done? Um, right. And so, you know, I learned that going in, but then being on with that team for the 10 months, watching us pull buses over in order to do conditioning in an open field that we found or whatever it was, <laughs> just all of everything that we sacrificed to be able to say, you know what, we're as prepared as we can be going into the Olympics. It was yep. just, it was so worth it that now it's like when I have to sacrifice watching a TV show in order to go do conditioning or go get a bullpen in, like it's an easy sacrifice to make because we all sacrificed a whole lot more and reaped the rewards. Yep. I, you know, this, your situation in 04 is making me think about a coaching workshop I did last week with a bunch of high school coaches, and they were mentioning how hard it is when a freshman comes in and makes varsity and takes away a starting spot or playing time from an upperclassman. And I'm curious, like on that 04 team, you played. I mean, you were a rookie. You're the youngest on the team. Um, but, you know, you were you had two wins and a save and led the team in strikeouts, and you must have been – displacing someone who is a more senior member of that team. Um, was that ever an issue um, in the 2004, you know, the lead-up or in the 2004 games? And what advice do you have for coaches about how to handle that really talented incoming player who is going to take time away from a more senior player? Um, it wasn't really an issue, to be honest. Um, I think – I hate to say it, but I, I mean, I took some time away from Lori, who had taken me under her wing. Um, but yep. to this day, her and I are still close. And um, for and most people will realize she was just on The Biggest Loser this last season. Um, <laughs> and, and she made it into the top five. And, you know, I had texted her telling her how proud I was of her journey there. And the first thing she said to me is, I've always smiled watching you play, and I continue to do so. And I'm just like, holy cow, here we are 10 years later, and she's still you know, watching me play and still following me and um, to, you know, I think the biggest thing was that when we, when that team was named and when our roster was set, coach made it apparent that it didn't matter how much everybody played, all 18 of us were going to be needed, or it might have been 15, I can't remember what our roster size was, but all of us were going to be needed in order to win. So even if you were only yeah. going to throw one inning or even if you were only going to be a pinch runner or pinch hit once, all of us were going to be needed some way, shape, or form every day from that point forward in order to win. And so we all bought in. And, you know, at the time, did I think that I was going to throw as much as I did? No. But when we scrimmaged, I was going to throw as well as I could so that way our team was ready when we got to the Olympics. And if we faced the lefty from another team, hopefully I prepared us as well as I could. Um, yep. And so that's kind of the mentality we all adopted. Um, I think I'm fortunate to say that I look back and there really wasn't there really wasn't a selfish person on that roster. Um, we all were working together to be the best team that we could be as soon as we entered that. And I think that's where when coaches or with teams today is coaches want to make everybody happy. And you're not going to make everybody happy, but you have to allow them to know what their role really is going to be. Yeah. And if they don't accept that, then they don't belong because you're going to have to have role players that accept that. Um, but you have to find the team that's going to accept their role and then continue to push to be better. And, um, yeah. you know, I think we benefited. It really – no one complained about not playing over there. I mean, it's not so hard to complain when you're at the Olympics. Most people would love to be your water girl or whatever at that point. But, <laughs> but um, it helped. It really helped because Coach established everybody's roles and 
really preached that all of us were going to be needed, and and we all we all bought in. It was um, probably the, me being the youngest, obviously the first time in my life that I had seen that really happen. And um, yeah, it was it's just remarkable to look back because we were like when we conditioned everybody cheered everybody on, and everybody was trying to be faster than yesterday. And mm-hmm. yes, there were days that we didn't all want, you know we didn't want to do it, but we all looked and remembered. You know what? Come August we're going to look back at this and be glad we did it. Um, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's hard for coaches to cultivate that sometimes, but I think the best, the best way is honesty, like being honest with all your athletes about their role, about what they bring to the table and allowing them to know what strength it is they have that's going to contribute to the team so they can focus on that. Yeah. I really, I love, I love what you're saying here. And I think it comes down to communication and honest communication and that a coach's job isn't always easy. You can't, everyone can't be a starter and you're going to have examples where younger players are going to start over older players. And it's just important that those older players really know their role and still feel like they're valuable to the team. Um, so I, I, I really appreciate what you're saying. Um, another hot issue that we often deal with, um, and you've heard me use this term positive initiation um, at Positive Coaching Alliance, we sort of think of that as the opposite of hazing. So, you know, hazing, unfortunately, is a real issue um, when it comes to, you know, college teams or high school teams and this idea that we're going to sort of give somebody a rough time and, and sort of enculturate them onto our team um, by putting them down and, you know, uh, rather than sort of having a positive initiation and really welcoming on welcoming someone into the family of the team. And I'm just curious, like, is there something that you've done? You know, you've you've been a college coach now, a grad assistant at UT. You've been at DePaul and St. Edwards and now at Texas State. Um, any good practices that high school coaches or club coaches could follow um, about bringing new players onto their team? Um, you know, I think a couple, a couple ideas come to mind. Um, obviously, with college, it's a little different, but I know my freshman year at Texas, the best thing that was done was there were nine of us coming in and there were nine returners. So we all joked that if we got hazed, at least we were 50-50 and we could hold our own. <laughs> um, yeah. But what the, the best thing the coaches did, and none of us knew, is they had already talked to all of our parents and um, mm. you know they had gotten pictures of like from us playing club ball and high school ball and all that. And first day we're, we're there, our coach puts in a video and you know us freshmen think we're watching last year's highlight video. So we're like, oh, okay, this will be fun. Well, it was last year's highlights for the returners, but then intermixed were pictures and highlights from all of us from club ball and high school ball. And at awesome. the end, it was like, you know, sure. And with our new additions, what can we do now? And so it's like you watch that video, and all of a sudden, in our coach's mind, we're one team. And so we that's all left fabulous. there. And, you know, as as freshmen, we were like, oh wow, like we're already included in, in a video. That's sweet. And so you kind of feel part of the team already. Um, yep. When I was at St. Ed, a lot of times, one of the first the first week of school, our kids have um, a team dinner. And they do team dinners quite a bit, um, but they do a team dinner. And I think they had an activity where they have a sheet of each person has a sheet of paper with their name on it, and you pass it around the table before or after they eat, and they everyone writes, um, you know, just a positive note to somebody else. Um, and they do that the first week of school, in which so then obviously they don't really know the freshmen real well, so sometimes it's like, oh, I like your shoes, and then a <laughs> month later. A month later or at the beginning of season, they do it again, and now they've gotten to know each other, and you get to, you know, you get a little bit more of a personalized note than I like your shoes. Um, right. But it's just a way to include them and do something fun um, that's not hazing. And I think 
the biggest thing is as soon as coaches can accept, like point out and accept the new, new team members and include them in everything, everyone else starts to too because I've been fortunate that hazing was never anything any of my teams um, partake, partook in. But, um, you know, as soon as a coach accepted a new, a new teammate or if I was the new teammate because, you know, I wasn't always – I didn't play for my dad or anything, um, so I was always joining other people's teams. But as soon as, like, the coach accepted it and was like, this is, you know, this is Kat, this is who she is, this is what she's going to do for us, then you automatically notice that the team then welcomes them too. That they follow. Um, one of the uh, sort of a debate that we often end up having with coaches is around having the rookies carry the equipment, or you know set up the practice field, or you know be the ones who have to always clean up, and that it's always the rookies or the freshmen. Um, do you feel like that's a tradition that's a good one for a program to have, or is that something that maybe you would try to step away from? You know, I've actually gone back and forth on that one, too, because when I was at school, you know, the, fr- the freshmen did it for a while, well, although we didn't use the term freshmen. We just used the term newcomers. Um, but the newcomers always carried equipment, and then, you know, it passed down. And now if we had a freshman class of, like, two people, then obviously the sophomores helped out. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing. We always do it just more of um, – I don't want to say you earn your keep, but you're just – it's kind of just something that has always been done which I hate that term, but um, or I hate that phrase, but it's just a, you know, you're pulling your weight. Um, and then, but I also, I disagree with it when it's a, like, nobody else will help out or nobody will pick a freshman up if they forget their bag and they want to, you know, now we're just right. let the freshmen get in trouble because they left the bag of balls sitting at the other field or whatever. Um, I don't think, I, I think it's a responsibility. If you're teaching responsibility and keeping them, you know, in charge it's one thing. It's another thing that it's constantly reminded of them that it's a freshman duty, and it's yeah, it's not your, it's not your responsibility. You're not in charge of something that you have to remember to bring to the field, and we're teaching something. It's just just because you're a freshman, or just because you know what I said. So um, that's when I think it becomes a little bit a little bit more towards hazing or a negative situation. But um, you know, actually, here I don't think at Texas State, I don't think we regulate it just to freshmen. Um, everybody yeah. helps carry equipment and we have managers and everybody helps the managers set up the field. So it doesn't matter who you are. That's, that's great. So, um, Kat, you have so many insights and wonderful stories. I could talk to you for an hour and a half, but I'm going to try to try to limit myself here. I've, I can't, um, let this podcast interview end without asking you about, um, approaching the mound and talking to a pitcher and either, you know, for so many years you were that pitcher on the mound, having coaches come out to talk to you, and now I would imagine, like, when you go out and talk to a pitcher, how do you approach that time? And I think that's such an important interaction between a player and a coach. Do you have any tips for coaches of how to do that um, effectively with athletes? Yes. The first thing is don't state the obvious. Um, I think <laughs> the, worst, the worst thing is coming out and being like, hey, we need you to throw strikes. I'm still waiting for the day some pitcher looks at their coach and says, oh, really? Is that what you want me to do? Because <laughs> that's the first thing everyone wants to say, and it's like, well, no joke. That's what we're supposed, that's what we're supposed to do. Um, but, you know, I use that time. I, I go out, remind them to breathe, um, remind them to relax a little bit, because usually, obviously, they're rushing or they're out of their routine or we just kind of are going haywire. So I kind of use that time to slow them down a little bit. Um, I usually yeah. make them breathe, talk to me a little bit about how they're feeling. Usually I bring the catcher out too and I'll ask her, you know, are we missing a little bit or are we missing a lot? Is it spinning? Kind of get 
get the information I need about the pitch from the catcher, so that way the pitcher's not trying to analyze herself, her spin, her everything, and talk to me all at once. Um, And usually I just come back with a game plan. Hey, you know what? We're going to throw this pitch right now. Uh, That's all I want you to worry about is this one next pitch. Let's get that pitch and then, you know, get out of the inning or, you know, we're going to throw that pitch and then we're going to live on this for the rest of the inning. And just kind of give them a game plan that they can relax and know, okay, I have an idea of what I'm doing. Um, If I see something mechanical, I'll tell them, but usually I try to save any mechanical issues to talk to them between innings instead of out on the mound. Um, Yeah. But I really don't, I mean, I'm not going to go out there and be like, what do you think you're doing throwing all these balls? Because obviously that's not their intent. Um, and I think people forget that. Like, obviously no one's trying to screw up or trying to walk people um, or get hit. But you have to remember to slow the game down for them because they're not, most of them don't have the mental game at that point to slow it down for themselves. Yeah, yeah. I think um, one thing that often comes up is, like, how do you help athletes focus forward and you know a lot of athletes if they make a mistake or things don't go well they'll start replaying that in their head like if they gave up a hit or you know they missed a fielding play they should have had and this isn't isn't just pitchers um and it's not just softball players but athletes of any sport and I'm curious you know as a pitcher it's obviously really important for you to be able to move on in the moment from a bad outcome and did you have like a specific strategy when you pitched of like how to let a mistake go and focus forward and keep your focus on what you could control? And and is that something that you actively coach your players on? Yeah. um, You know, I think every every pitcher usually has a routine. Most of the time if you talk to them, they'll feel like it's a superstition more than it's a routine. Um, Mm. But if you – if you word it and make them realize what part, like what their routine is really doing, um, then they realize it's not so much a superstition. Um, hmm. So for me personally, I throw my pitch, um, regardless of what happens when I get the ball back, I walk to the back of the circle. Um, I'm usually looking out. I've always, for whatever reason, given my center fielder the number of outs after every single pitch. I know it does. Mm-hmm. I know the number of outs doesn't change every pitch, but <laughs> right, that's just right. what I've done. Um, I give the outs, I turn back around, and I don't really turn back around until I'm ready to throw. Um, so sometimes mm-hmm. I'll stand in the back of the circle, and even if our center fielder's given the outs back, because I have some that give it back and some that just ignore me. Um, uh-huh. But I'll stand there until I'm ready, and then when I turn around and get back on the mound, now I'm ready. And once I get, but the other thing is, once I get my signal, for me, I can I take a brief, quick, quick, like two, three second, visualize the pitch that was called and where I want it to go before I throw. Um, mm. And doing that is, I think, where I don't look forward or I don't look backwards. I'm only looking forward because I'm not going to replay that pitch because there's no reason to. Um, right. And I'm really big with our pitchers on getting their routines right now. And there's always a point in their routine where they have to take a deep breath before coming back to the mound because that's our release and that's where we release yep. the last pitch. And then once bef- before we actually pitch, whether it's right before they step on the mound or after they get their signal, they take another breath just to relax. Um, yeah. and be able to throw. So I'm I'm really big with them on keeping their routines and finding a way for them to release because that is the hardest part. I have a freshman right now who has admitted that that's the hard part for her because she hasn't struggled a lot. You know, most college athletes get here because they had great high school careers, and so she hasn't had a lot of failure she's had to deal with consistently. And so when we get hit, we have to figure out how are we going to release it. And so I'm working with her on that right now, but. It's interesting because they don't realize that their superstition or what they think a superstition is really a routine. They're just not very conscious of it. 
Yep, yep, I love that. So my last question for you, and I'm sure this has never happened to you, um, is, is what advice would you give players when they are frustrated with the umpire and they really feel like the, the zone is just it's not fair and, or maybe it's not consistent and they start to feel themselves thinking more and more about the umpire? Um, what advice would you give players um, and maybe even coaches who are starting to feel frustrated with the umpire? Um, how can they handle that? This is where I'll say do as I say, not as I do. Um, <laughs> as, a player, as a player, I'm probably a little more animated towards an umpire than I should be, and I know that. Um, it's just, for me, I have some competitive fire sometimes. But I don't, I don't say anything obscene at them. Um, I think the biggest thing is to realize that, you know what, they're trying to do their job as best as they can, and they're human too, so they're going to mess up. Um, but for... From a player's perspective, and I've gotten a lot better at this as I got older, you know, my first couple years of college was a little different, is just worrying about me and my catcher. Um, Being a pitcher, it's like you can't worry about the umpire because, one, if I'm throwing my pitches where I'm really supposed to be, it shouldn't be that much of a question. And, two, if I'm throwing as well as I should be, then they'll start to swing at some point, or they should be swinging. Mm -hmm. So why am I worrying about a variable that is completely without, you know, not in my control? Yeah. Um, as a coach, it's a little different because you want to be, you obviously want to support your athletes and you want to be a little more vocal and know where things are. Um, but again, you know, it's a matter of a lot of times I'll talk to our catcher. I won't say something to the umpire. I'll ask the catcher, where did that miss? And she'll tell me. And then, you know, when, um, when the pitcher comes in, I ask her, where, you know, where do you think those are? And if they, if my pitchers and catchers both are on the same page where they think they're close, you know, either me or my head coach will just chat the umpire in between innings, like, hey, how far off are those? Or, hey, you know, do you right. miss that one? Um, yeah. Because, you know, I always joke when an umpire tells my catcher he missed it. I'm like, well, why can you tell me you missed it now and not just call it then? <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's part of it. And I, but I think we all forget that, you know what, they're human too. They're not robots. They're not going to They're not gonna be perfect. And, you know, some of it is judgment. And their judgment's not our judgment. Um, yeah. But the last thing an athlete needs to do is be getting – so overwhelmed with the umpire that they get taken out of their own game and um, they just have to remember that if you're really throwing you don't need the umpire to be successful so if you're really throwing as well as you can and should be people should be swinging or balls shouldn't be that close that to being balls or strikes yeah one of the things you said there um you know the way you're you as a coach talk to an umpire it sounds like you use a lot of questions and, you know, where was that one, you know, how much did that one miss by, rather than sort of a direct confrontational, that was a strike. Um, and I think that that kind of conversation, it's a respectful way to talk to umpires, and you're going to get a lot farther and have a better relationship with them. Um, oh, yeah. Pat, uh, this is, you know, this has been so helpful, and I feel like both coaches and parents and athletes are going to learn so much from listening to this interview um, so I wanted to thank you so much for spending this time with Positive Coaching Alliance and encourage our listeners to follow you on Twitter. I think you're at Kat Osterman, um, and I know you're very active there, and just wishing you all the best of luck in your, your coaching career, and um, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.